I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is one of those incredible women, those role models that honestly get me to frequently think like, what's wrong with me? I mean, Dr. Tara Swart is a neuroscientist. She's a medical doctor. She's an executive advisor and a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan. She's the author of a bestseller, The Source, and she is a coach that only advises a very small number of individuals via personal recommendations only. And she speaks at major conferences globally only. Tara is also the chief science officer at Heights, neuroscience and psychology advisor at To Be Magnetic. She's the chief neuroscience officer at Aruana International. Uh, in 2020, she became the spokesperson for Aromatherapy Associates, Revive Range, and now she represents several beauty brands focusing on health, well-being, and innovative technologies. Uh, Tara is the ambassador for Pack for a Purpose, a charity that assists travelers by making meaningful contributions to communities while they travel. She does have 24-hour days like we all do, but I think it's her purpose and the way she lives and what she wants to achieve in life that makes her so special. Join me in enjoying a wonderful conversation with my new dear friend, Dr. Tara Swart. Hi, Tara, how are you? I'm good. It's so nice to meet you. I feel as if I know you. I feel exactly the same. It's like, of course, I know your work, but then I realize after looking at your work and going like, oh my God, look at this celebrity, how smart and so on. And then I realize we have so many common friends. I know. So you're super accomplished. You're really teaching us a lot of stuff. You're a neuroscientist, but you're spiritual. And hey, you know what? You're a woman. So of course, preparing for this, I was like, I'm so tempted to talk to her about neuroscience, so tempted, but I actually don't. I mean, we're definitely going to come to this, but I, I want to actually start with the other two, because honestly, in your field, being a neuroscientist, in your field, being so pushing boundaries, if you want, in neuroscience, it's very unusual to be a woman. It's very unusual to be spiritual. So that must have been quite a challenge as like, this wasn't an easy journey. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about what it's like to be a woman and spiritual woman in neuroscience? You know how we said we feel like we know each other already. I've made a personal decision to not just spout neuroscience facts and to talk a bit more like a human being. And actually, I was very inspired by Stephen Fry when Dan interviewed him and how he just speaks from the heart. But all of the advice and knowledge is in there. And... I can talk through all this vitamin and that vitamin and blah, blah, blah. But 
there's so much more than that. So yeah, I, this would be the first time that I really do that and I would love to do that. Let's do it then. So open question, how spiritual are you? I would say that it's always been in my life, but now I would feel bold enough to say that I live and die by my spiritual guidance that is, I would say, connected to my intuition, but obviously to something greater as well. Whereas for a long time, you know, as a child growing up in an Indian culture, but in London, I felt like I had two separate lives and I had to keep, you know, like I wanted to be like my friends, obviously, and fit in. And then things happened at home that none of my friends, it wouldn't have been normal for them. So I kept that very separate. And then I had another dilemma when my parents wanted me to be a doctor, but they don't believe in Western medicine. So again, I was having to keep my personal life and my professional life very separate. And when I came to my first big crisis in my life that I drew on both of those and that's when I started to understand that you don't have to keep them separate. And it was yet another step for me to understand that you must not keep them separate. And then I wrote my book, The Source, which is essentially in one sentence about science and spirituality. Thank you. And the response to that, I think my journey in writing it really brought those two things together like never before. But actually, I, I have to be really humble and say it was the response from people that made me think, oh, wow, this is okay. And it's not just okay, it's something and it's something really special. And that's had a huge impact on me. Then I've asked for other things to come into my life. Like I work with this manifestation company in LA. That's had a huge impact on me. Although I'm applying the neuroscience and psychology to their work, I obviously had to do the work to be able to, to do that. And, and so in a way, now that I've opened the door, the universe is giving me so much evidence and validation that that is the way that I should live my life. And now I'm beginning to believe that for people to have a, a whole and well and happy is the answer almost. And, and interesting, you say that it's unusual, but I've noticed now that I'm open to it, that there are more people like me, I don't, not any women role models that I know of, but who are strong scientists that become very spiritual later in their career. So Deepak Chopra, Bruce Lipton, they're two icons for me in, in that way. Yeah, I'm, I hosted here, of course, Dan Siegel, uh, Rick Hansen. Yes, Dan, yeah. Yeah, amazing, really, the, the mix between them, you know, Robert Wallinger and so on. Exactly. Yeah, I um, got to meet Dan Siegel recently, and that was like a dream come true for me. Oh, my God. Yeah, he is quite something, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I always thought he was, but I did feel that more spiritual side of things now because I discovered him when I was changing career. So I was going from medicine to becoming a coach, which also meant going from something very senior in a hierarchy to being absolutely at the bottom of the pile, not understanding business terminology and things like that. And and also this really weird thing that I didn't expect, which is that business coaches largely either have a psychological background or they're like a retired experienced business person. So I thought I would obviously fall into the psychologist camp because I definitely didn't have any business experience. But because I was a psychiatrist, former psychiatrist, I was like this one unusual creature that didn't fit into any camp. And I was getting divorced at the time. So I was so lost in my life and I felt that sense of belonging was gone for me. I mean, and that's the worst thing that can happen to your brain. And it was gone in every respect, professionally and personally. 
And then I read Mindsight. And I said to Dan when I met him, well, on Zoom, obviously, and I said, when I finished it, I thought it was a brilliant book. And obviously, like professionally, I appreciated it. But I actually felt like I belong. It made me feel like I have something to offer and I belong. And so obviously, you know, he was very blown away by that because he didn't really know, well, he didn't know anything about me personally. He obviously agreed to be interviewed by me for my new online program, which is coming out next year, which I'm very excited about. I want to tell you about that too. But you still haven't answered my question. How spiritual are you? So now I would say, yeah, that all of my major life decisions are guided by, by spirituality. And what is spirituality to you? To me, it's being connected. So it's being connected to yourself, but also it's about universal connection. So it's not about being religious at all or even necessarily believing in God, but it's about believing that it is something inexplicable. And from a young age, I've always loved science fiction. And I've often said science fiction is just science that haven't been proved yet. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s. So that's kind of become true. If you watch Star Trek or Star Wars, our life is kind of, you know, there are lots of things that are real in our life now. And I think spirituality is the same. It can't be completely explained. But if you believe in it, and you tap into it, and you start to see the results of life flowing in a beautiful way with less effort, then you can believe it more and then it becomes cumulative. That's my experience of spirituality. I like the connection definition. I, I sort of say science is sort of studying and explaining everything physical, everything that our physical sensory machine can grasp, but that spirituality is responsible for everything connecting to everything that's non-physical. And, and I think the idea of first agreeing with yourself that there is a non-physical and then trying to connect to it is something that some people struggle with. And I think especially scientists, because they're so well-trained to look at the physical. We'll come back to this because there are so many questions around the source and the overlap between science and spirituality. But I want to talk about being a woman in that field. You even were saying a few minutes ago, you know, I don't know of any other women scientists in that field. How much more difficult has it been to you to find your path as a scientist when you're a woman versus the typical other guy? Yeah. So I do have a, a sort of idol who Professor Baroness Susan Greenfield is a neuroscientist who's written some very popular books. And Actually, her field is very similar to what I did my PhD in. So when I went to Oxford to complete medical school, she was actually my pastoral care tutor. So I was so lucky to have direct access to her. And she's been very supportive of me since then. But I think in this more science merging with spirituality area, and even then, there just aren't that many senior female neuroscientists that I aspire to, put it that way. So I can only tell you what happened for me. And I, unfortunately, I don't think it's that helpful for other people because... I just simply wasn't aware of limitations as a woman. So I had a very, very supportive father who basically, you know, he called me Tara, which means star, and always told me that I could do anything. So when I went to medical school, which was kind of more to meet their expectations than necessarily what I thought about I wanted, but then I really blossomed at medical school. That's where my interest in the neuro parts of everything medical started. So when they said choose a special topic, it was obvious to me I wanted to choose neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neuropharmacology. 
And then I got offered the chance to do a PhD in the middle of medical school. That's why I said when I went back and I went to Oxford afterwards. And there were girls doing PhDs at the same time. This was uh, over 25 years ago. So it really was before neuroscience was a hot topic. And in a way, I think before all of this, it's much harder for women to be in science. Like that wasn't even a thing then. So I didn't think about it. I just did. I just followed my passion. And later when I came to my crisis point and I thought I didn't really choose medicine, what do I really want to do? If I could have done whatever I wanted, what would that have been? I heard, it was actually a Steve Jobs quote, which was, if you follow your passion, you will be successful. And like everybody else, I'm sure I listened to that and thought, well, it's okay to say that when you're already successful. But having lived that, I absolutely believe that's true. You know, leaving medicine is a very, very difficult decision. It's full of guilt because you're leaving behind all the patients that you've cared for and the ones in the future that you would have cared for. But I was saying to another doctor friend the other day that because I'm doing work that lights me up, I know that I'm offering more to the world than if I had done any other job that perhaps wasn't exactly what I love doing all the time. I mean, I've sort of worked too hard and traveled too much and everything, but this year in lockdown with all the mental health issues, and I've always said, this could be a mental health crisis or it could be a spiritual revolution. And that's part of my evolution in, in spirituality. I've worked so hard, but it's been so purpose-driven that I haven't felt as tired and drained as I do in a normal year. And I think that's spirituality too. I think that's your spirit is aligned with what it was put on this earth to do. Mm, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. The statement of it was put on that earth and what it's supposed to do. That's, I think that's a mega, mega state. I should, however, say the first statement you said when you answered this question was so interesting because you said, I was never aware of the limitations of being a woman. I relate so strongly to this because again, I'm a Middle Eastern Muslim. My name is Muhammad Ali. So from a discrimination point of view, you sort of feel that no one really likes you, at least in airports and security lines. Yes, absolutely. And so growing in corporate America to become chief business officer of Google X and, you know, all the career that I had, as I looked back at it, I realized that the biggest thing about going that far was that I never felt the limitation. I actually never looked at me as a Middle Eastern terrorists, you know, the global view of, I mean, seriously, I mean, from a very interesting point of view, you know, when I was 24 as a salesman for the first time in my life, I never really understood why are people so worried about meeting CEOs? I mean, they probably pee like I do, so they're normally human like I am. And so what's the limitation? And I think that thinking when it comes to empowering our feminine is so profound. When we suddenly start to go out in the world and say, hey, by the way, there's really not much I can't do. I mean, there are different things I can do better than the masculine of us and other things that I do slightly less effective just because the feminine and masculine have different qualities and capabilities and strengths to them. But I'm not limited in any way. And I think that probably puts you in a very different place. I mean, I probably believe that the biggest hindrance to the feminine in our world has been the conditioning that you're not supposed to be doing this or you're not capable of doing that. And if we yes, remove that, yes. everything changes. 
so many things that you've just said like really resonate with me so one is this understanding that the masculine and the feminine exists in both genders or all genders you've said that as if it's like completely understood by everyone i don't think it is i actually know that so that's the book i'm starting to work on right now oh <laughs> yes to explain openly that the feminine is different than biology and the feminine is in every one of us yeah yeah and I also write about feminine traits and masculine traits, not like the female brain and the male brain. Also, this idea of the limitation thing is absolutely proven by neuroscience. So, and there's a very old quote about it by Henry Ford, which is, if you think you can't or you think you can, you're probably right. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> that is the truth, actually. Exactly. And then when I went down a real like spiritual rabbit hole at one point when I was, you know, after I got divorced and I did a lot of personal development and soul searching, I heard about this theory that like in the dark ages, because men went to battle and if they were injured and they bled, then it often meant that they died. You know, the reason that they burnt witches at the stake was because women bled every month, but they didn't die and men couldn't understand that. And it made them think that women was immortal. So there's actually there was at one time a great fear of women's like immortality and power. So that's, I think, I don't know enough about it, but I think that's been very suppressed in society because it was like started by fear and it's led to the, you know, some of the ideas that have lingered in our society for so long now. And you remind me of a story of a woman who had been in banking, had been very successful and we were starting coaching at the same time. She was of Indian origin as well. And so she had all these great contacts that I didn't have. I'd been an NHS doctor, so I didn't have any business contacts. And she went to see a really senior guy in banking who's very supportive of her. But he said, you know, you're going to try and make it now in this new career. And it's hard enough for anyone to make a big career change. But, you know, you're Indian and you're a woman. And she said, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, it's going to be harder. And she came and told me this. And I was like, I think being Asian and a woman are the best things about me. <laughs> I love that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's exactly the point. I mean, the idea is, yeah, they may not be for everyone. So some people will go like, nah, not my cup of tea. But other people will go like, oh my God, that's exactly what I need in my life right now. And then, you know, yeah. when you start to think about it, yes, of course, they're the best things. Well, I'm not even saying that they're the best things, but they're the best things about me. Again, the spirituality, like what were you put on this planet to do? It's like, what is so unique about you that no one else has it? And of course, it's not just being female and Indian because there are a lot of female Indians, but it's everything. It's that unique blueprint. You have to find what that is. And I think another aspect of spirituality is the whole journey in your life of finding out what that thing was. So I can't let it go more than twice. What were you put on this planet to do? Do you know? Yes. Um, so, in fact, I had put it into a phrase so, so long ago before I understood what any of this means. And I could give you a more complex and professional answer, but I'm not going to insult you by doing that because I know that's not who you are. So when I first became a doctor, one of the things, the privileges that I really understood was that when people are in pain, when people are afraid, when people are dying they will let you do anything to them that they wouldn't really let anybody else in the world ever do. They'll let you see them at their most vulnerable. They'll let you touch them, prod them, poke them, whatever. And even when I then changed to coaching and it was more about touching people's hearts, to me, it's that 
absolute privilege that I have to touch people in a way that not many people have the opportunity to, whether that was physically as a doctor oh or emotionally in what I do now. And I, it's funny, that phrase had come into my mind when I was a very junior doctor, but I didn't really, maybe it didn't flourish until I found the thing that I wanted to do. But I look back now and I think people have let me into their hearts and their lives in a way that some people do with their spouse, but not even everybody does. And as a psychiatrist, you know, I could also probe into people's like deepest, darkest thoughts. So that's the privilege that I've been given. And so I take that with huge responsibility that if you're able to touch someone's heart and mind and like previously body as well. So in such a unusual way, especially when they're the most vulnerable, then it's your responsibility to do the best job with that that you can. You've just touched my heart and mind in such a <laughs> profound way. That is so beautiful, Tara. I think that's... Thank you. And when I hear you saying it that way, I realize what you mean by saying, this is what I'm here to do. Because you've been sort of brought up to be that person through a life path. But it's so interesting because I actually believe that everyone has the opportunity to touch everyone's heart. Yes. Everyone has the opportunity to touch everyone's mind as they cross paths. But I don't think many people take that responsibility responsibly, if you want. It's so interesting when you say it this way, because I was giving a talk now, a public talk, and one of the questions that came up was about that idea of, of our own interactions and our own connections and the responsibilities we have about that. And I find it quite interesting because for someone like me, I'm like you, I wake up every morning and I will spend every minute I possibly can with every human that crosses my path to try and do something good with that moment. It might be a little pressuring for me, it might be not the exact right time, but this is a human, this is someone that passed through my life and perhaps will never pass through my life again, right? And perhaps this is my only opportunity to connect with them so profoundly that I feel alive and they feel alive and hopefully inspired. And it's such a big responsibility. And I wonder why people don't see it that way. I wonder why people just connect and cross paths in the passing, if you want. Yeah. I'm definitely, the way that I put it now is, is about paying attention. So I say that all the time. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Because my ex-husband said to me the other day, because he's a doctor too, and I had my annual blood tests, and he very kindly went through it with me in detail because I'm a bit out of the loop on that now. And they were surprisingly good considering the stressful year that we've all had, and I was definitely prepared for it to be worse than previous. And he said to me, do you meditate a lot? And because I used to like formally meditate a lot when we were together, and I said, not really, but now it's a complete way of life for me to do mindful eating, mindful walking, and the biggest one is paying attention. So a bit like you said, if I'm really busy, and I've been working five time zones since lockdown one, and my husband suddenly comes and says something, of course, sometimes I get irritated if I'm in the middle of something, right? But I now have that pause button where more I'm like, okay, I'm in the middle of an email, but this person needs me and this is the person I say I love most in the whole world. So why would I not give him my attention? What email is more important than that right now? And even like we talked about our mutual friend, she's very, very good at paying attention, but I, I really do it with her. And then you feel that resonance with the person when you're both doing it. I think you feel it more so. 
and it's a very different interaction to meeting someone and having a chat where they're not really paying attention and you're not really paying attention. And I don't even just mean you're not looking at your phone or your phone's not on silent. I mean properly paying attention to that person's soul, not even just what they're saying. You're amazing. You're totally amazing. So that I call meditation in the modern world. I think the reality is that you don't have to be in the meditation room to actually focus and you don't have to focus on your breathing to focus. You can focus on someone's eyes, someone's words, someone's breathing, someone's emotions, and you can focus on them. And I think that gives you more energy. It gives you more presence. And it really, if you do that enough, you're probably meditating four or five hours a day. There is a there is enough focus and enough. Can you tell me a bit about meditation? I mean, from a neuroscience point of view, does that actually work at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say it's probably seven years ago now that, like I said, I was practicing meditation myself, but then the brain scanning study started to come out. So I looked into it really seriously and I wanted to start presenting it in my neuroscience talks to like banks and hedge funds, but I... I still felt it could be a bit too left field for them. And then I got a very friendly bank, let's say. I'd done a lot of talks for them and the person who arranged them knew me really well. And he said, I completely trust you. So just do the talk on whatever you want, but we need something on the subject of change. So I got off on the stage and I said, I was supposed to give you a talk on the subject of change, but I've changed the title and I've changed the content. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There is change for you. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And that's when I first did my, I discussed the neuroscience of meditation, which I will come to. And it had such a good response. So I, you know, I got the feedback that I needed to be brave enough to keep doing that. And so there's three sort of sets of how, you know, stages of how I would say it works. So, If anyone who's never tried it before just sat down and closed their eyes and focused on their breath or just did open monitoring of their thoughts, it's not about emptying your mind of thoughts. So you get an immediate state of what's called relaxed alertness, which is a state that not many people are used to. We're used to being asleep. We're used to being fully task focused. But the kind of people who try meditation then immediately fall asleep, I always say that means you're not used to being awake and relaxed. And I've been speaking a lot more recently about forward folds in yoga that put your nervous system into the rest and digest. So, you know, your stomach gurgling, your breathing really slowing down. And of course, meditation helps to achieve that. We know that people who do yoga three times a week have lower levels of the stress hormone than age and gender matched controls. So men or women of the same age as them. And then I'm going to refer to the research of Professor Amishi Jha at the University of Miami in Florida. I, I love her work. And she did a study with the U.S. Marines. Eight weeks prior to deployment into battle, there was a control group that didn't do any meditation and a group that did 12 minutes of mindfulness meditation per day. And she was able to show that they had increased resilience on the battlefield when they were then deployed into battle. Even in the the group that were meant to be meditating, there were some skeptics that they didn't really engage. But when they got to battle and they could see, oh, my friends who did meditation can sleep. They're not sweating with anxiety all the time. They asked to start once they'd already like, you know, were in the place of battle. And she and I both thought that would be too late to start. But actually, they showed significant improvements in resilience, reduction in anxiety, reduction in insomnia. And 
with people who meditate regularly for two or three months or more, and that's just most days of the week, and it could be as little as 12 minutes, we actually see increased density of the folding of the outer layers of the brain. So the outer layers of the brain are made up of a series of folds called gyri, or the singular is gyrus. And so we see denser gyrification of the brain in long-term regular meditators. And what that means is that where the frontal part of the brain regulates the emotional part of the brain that's deep inside, it's like you get more of a pause button. So it's a little bit like the example I gave you earlier, which is if I'm in the middle of reading or writing an email and somebody comes and disturbs me, my initial reaction might be to be irritated or feel distracted. With regular mindfulness, you're able to either not feel that in the first place or very quickly turn it around and sort of finish that task and turn and pay full attention to the person and be able to switch back to your task really effectively as well. Obviously, it helps to regulate emotions for yourself. So if you're experiencing emotions that aren't to do with somebody else, maybe it's just the stress of what's happened in 2020, then your ability to bring that emotion down to a normal range is also increased. So like I said, there are sort of all sorts of knock-on effects on things like sleep quality, breathing, blood pressure, muscular tension. So, you know, lots of physiological benefits. That's almost like growing a muscle that allows you to control your mood, basically. It's like I'm capable of controlling this. I like the way you said that because I think control sometimes has a negative connotation because people are put off meditation because it, they think you have to control your thoughts and they don't think they can do that. And really, you know, most of us can't. But it's a very good sense of the journey that happened for me was moving from feeling like quite a lot of things were outside and out of my control to understanding a lot more that whatever happens outside, I have resources in me that can help me to control at least my response to that outside I love that. Factor. Yeah. So Tara, you brought up the difficult year many times. So you spoke about the lockdown, the stress that we feel, the interactions that must be very stressful for all of us. And I, I heard you on one of your talks compare the current situation, the sort of loss of freedom, loss of security, loss of certainty to the cobbler Ross, basically the grief curve. I found that to be quite enlightening, actually. So tell me a bit about that. How is what we're going through similar to grief? I mean, some of us have not lost much at all. No. So that Kubler-Ross grief curve has actually been repurposed already for many years as a change curve. So very early on in March, I thought, oh yeah, this is more relevant than ever. And I started including it in my talks, like you said. And the more I said it, the more I realized how true it was. And the feedback that I got from you know thousands of people is basically that the thing about this change or grief curve is that any unexpected or unwanted change sets off a chain of emotional responses. And this one says it starts with shock and denial, then an anger phase, then bargaining, then depression, then acceptance. People might use different words, but basically it's a curve that sort of has heightened kind of quite sort of outward and aggressive emotions and then a real like inward and depressive phase and then finally some sort of moving forward with acceptance and responsibility. 
And I think it's been really helpful for people to manage their own emotions, understanding that that's what's going on. And actually, this really comes back to what I said about my own experience of going through divorce, which was that when I was a psychiatrist, sometimes we would have people on the ward who had tried to kill themselves because their relationship had broken down. And they had very extreme emotions and mood changes because of that relationship breakdown. And I remember thinking when I was going through my divorce that if I didn't know what I do about emotions and mood changes and how you know, your brain reacts to a big change or loss like that, I could see how you could end up on a psychiatric ward. Whereas I didn't have the personal empathy. Of course, I cared for my patients when they were going through that. But I didn't really think, oh, if I lost my job or had a relationship breakdown, I could end up on a psychiatric ward. I couldn't have empathized with that until I was in that situation myself. So bringing up this curve has helped people to understand their emotional journey better, which is, which is helpful because if your emotions go out of control, a lot of things in your life can go out of control and that really increases the damage that's happening to you as a person, and potentially to your family. Understanding with chronic low-grade stress, so long-term stress like we've had, that you can go through that curve several times. It's not just one journey from the shock to the acceptance. And that if you're confined in a household with people, that they can go through those range of emotions at a different pace. So let's say if you and I were confined together in lockdown and you were in the depression phase and I was in the anger phase, you can imagine how there'd be more conflict and tension between us than if just you were depressed and like, you know, there wasn't anything going on for me personally. Then I could attend to you much more. But if I'm feeling angry, I'm likely to get angry with you for feeling depressed. Do you know what I mean? So and you're likely to feel more depressed. Yeah, because more you're depressed. angry at me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's that. And then I actually want to bring up something else because connected to what we said earlier, which is this has obviously been a horrible year, but if we needed an example of universal connection, we have had it this year, like, not, like we've never had in anyone's living memory. Totally. So, of course, everyone in the world is going through the same thing. But at the beginning of lockdown, we had this phenomenon of vivid dreaming, which was global. Why is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it happened to me and I thought, oh, interesting. There's even more of a twist to that because I had this, it was an anxiety dream. It was a dream where I was lost in a, like a fun fair, but from a horror movie, you know, so dark and frightening. And, and then one of my former coaching clients suddenly appeared and I was so relieved to see him that I ran forward and gave him a hug. And then he grabbed me by the hand and he rescued me from this fun fair. And as soon as we got out into the daylight, instead of being thankful, I said, but now I've hugged you, I could get COVID. And that, that was the dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is anxiety at its best. At its best. And so what the brain does is the emotional part of the brain, the amygdala, and the memory part of the brain, the hippocampus, they interact to bring up all your anxieties because there's an anxiety-inducing situation in the world. So people, you know, I had my dream, people could dream about a breakup or a bereavement or whatever, but anything that like represents anxiety to you. But I want to tell you something more than that. I then went downstairs in the morning and said to my husband, I had this really weird dream. And I told him the name of the client because he knows him. At lunchtime, I got a text message from that client and I checked, I hadn't heard from him for three months. Mm -hmm. So, and my husband is not really into spirituality. So I went back to his study and I said, 
you're not going to believe who I've just had a text message from. And he said, I can't imagine. And when I told him the name, he sort of said, that is extraordinary. And in lockdown, I've been doing all this manifesting. And every time I say, oh, I'd like to be on Mo Gordas podcast. And then Alice says, oh, I know Mo. And, you know, and I go and tell him, oh, this just happened. I think he's starting to realize that there is something unexplainable, you know, that's not physical. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you led me right into the question I wanted to ask you, because you're a scientist and you say, I manifest. And in your book, you say that you manifested your husband. Did you really? I mean, like, he's a human being with a will and everything. How can you manifest a husband? Where's the science behind that as well? Yeah, okay. So I'll start with the science, because otherwise it's just going to be a, <laughs> an, another people love story. Will, people will, will stop the podcast right now. <laughs> exactly. So you have to keep listening if you want to hear the whole story. So the science is that we are absolutely overloaded with data as you know, as you well know, um, given your job. But we always have been. I mean, you know, everything that we experience through our five senses, everything we see, hear, touch, smell, everything we read, every person we meet, every memory we recall. And right now in the world, the amount of information that you would digest from reading the New York Times for a week is the amount of information that a person would have got in their entire lifetime 100 years ago. So that level of information overload has been exponential. So the brain has a very, very good filtering system. So for instance, the reason that you're not aware of your clothes on your body all day is because your brain filters out that sense physical sensation because it's not useful for you to constantly be aware of that. So what manifestation is about is consciously directing what your brain pays attention to. So it comes back to attention again. So the selective filtering process filters out everything that your brain doesn't think is necessary to you surviving or thriving. But if you aren't telling it what is necessary to you surviving or thriving, that process is happening completely non-consciously and not at all directed by you. Then there's selective attention. So what's filtered in, you pay attention to. And the third part of the brain process is value tagging, which is what you pay attention to is tagged in order of importance. And there's a logical element to that, but there's also an emotional element to that. And so visual imagery has a strong impact in priming your subconscious to the things that are emotionally valuable to you. So I do it by creating what I call an action board, which is what everybody knows as a vision board. But the action part is that you must also do something every day to move yourself closer towards achieving that goal. Even if it's just looking at the board, visualizing it coming true, but I'd like to push it further and say, you know, if you're looking for a career change that you're actively networking, if you're looking for a partner that you're actively dating, et cetera, et cetera. So the story, and this is the vision board from 2015, and I'm actually in my house in London at the moment. So it's, it's still by my bed because that was the one where my life completely changed. And I was like nine years between marriages. So it's not like I just moved on. I went through all of that personal development, soul searching, spiritual journey, and really focused on making myself whole again before I looked for somebody else. But I was also guilty of throwing myself into work and doing like insane amounts of global travel. And of course, I look back now and I know that that was to partly run away from and avoid the reality of everything. So in 2014, I thought, 
it's probably true that I'm just working too hard and I, I'm not opening my heart to anyone. So I should include something to do with love on my action board for this year. I don't have that action board anymore, but I know for a fact that it was 99% about work and travel. And there, I put a tiny, tiny heart on, <laughs> <laughs> on the board. So that was the board for 2015. So we get towards the end of 2015 and my friend, who's a professor of neuroscience, said to me, you said that you were going to find husband number two this year, but you haven't. It's December. And I think that was a bit of a wake up call for me because I thought, I know that if I put my mind to something, I can make it happen. So I obviously haven't really put my mind or my, and my heart and my spirit into it. So I need to be serious about this. And I've had all these material successes from the vision, the action board. Let's see if I really can actually change the way that, you know, I've been living and, and open my heart again. So I started looking for relevant imagery and I found actually in the financial times, a picture of an engagement ring. So I thought, okay, this is, I'm being serious now. I'm putting an engagement ring on there. I'm not just putting a heart. So I put that on the top left. I don't normally put any writing on my board, but I saw this advert slogan that said, joy comes out of the blue. It just really spoke to me. So I put that on there, top center. And then I had some housey stuff that, you know, I wanted to have like more space to entertain my friends and things like that. And I'm really passionate about conservation. So I had a rhino and a tiger there as well. So I made that action board in December 2015 for the year of 2016. On the 2nd of February 2016, I was flying back from Johannesburg on business and I sat next to the person who's now my husband. I didn't even want to talk to him, but there was a problem on the plane. So we had to talk to, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to sleep because I had to work the next day. So we had to interact. And then in the morning, he asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a neuroscientist. And he said, I'm very interested in neuroscience. Come and see me at the office. Gave me his business card. That's a horrible pickup line. Horrible, horrible. Like, come on, man. I don't think he even knew what neuroscience was, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but he tried. We should give him credit for that. He tried. He did try. And I think for him, there was some kind of, you know, light bulb moment. For me, it did take a bit longer, I have to say. But considering that I had put joy comes out of the blue and we met literally in the sky. Mm. And then he was renovating a house, which was absolutely a pile of rubble when I first saw it. But it was a like a grade two listed house. It had to be maintained in some of its way. When it was finished, I showed him my action board again and the picture of the house and the garden that were on there he said to me, that looks like our, our house. I mean, I couldn't have made that up. So I've told you how it works in the brain. I've told you that I have 12 plus years experience of it working. I've got my friends to do it. I've got my business clients to do it. Since the book came out, thousands of strangers have written to me and said that they've done it. And I've got pictures of engagement rings and baby bumps and new businesses and things like that. But it brings us back to how we started, which is about spirituality there's a part of it i can't explain and i don't want to oh i love that say that to your phd professor and he will take that degree back but but that is so amazing because there is so much in our world so much that we know exists we know works including love by the way which science can't explain can't prove can't measure i mean there is no way science can come and measure something about me and say, oh, by the way, you love that person. 
There's nothing you can do there. And there's no way they can explain with science why or how or how much I love that person. And it's so interesting because we still, however, know that love exists. We still know that it works. We still know that it's part of everyone's life, but science fails there. We don't really have to know how it works to know that it does work. And I think manifesting your life is maybe a little bit like that, isn't it? I think it is, but I think it's also saying that I am responsible for my life. I'm not a victim of circumstances. And so I will do everything in my power to live my best life for want of a better that sort of twee phrase. But like I said, what that really means is that you're doing the work that you were meant to do. You're paying attention to the people who you say you love, that you feel a connection to people, you know, a connection to everyone and everything. So a vision board, that's the answer? I need a vision board? I'd love you to make one. An action board. An action board, yeah. No, I definitely would would love you to make one and, and genuinely, honestly tell me what your experience with it is. Because I remember I was doing some press when my book was first about to come out in the UK. And I've said probably pretty much similar things to what I've said to you, but I just, I suddenly heard myself say, oh, I don't know anybody that's done a vision board and, and not said it was amazing. And then I, I sort of had this terrible pause where I thought, what if the journalist says, oh, well, I did one and it didn't really do anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then there was this long pause, which seemed longer than it was. And she said, actually, I did one a few years ago and it was amazing. And I sort of felt like I could hear angels singing, you know, it was kind of... <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I don't share that publicly, but I've manifested everything, everything from money to relationships to anything, 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 and to very accurate specs. My explanation of it from a science point of view is actually very anchored in quantum theory. So, so the idea of the uncertainty principle, the fact that what you observe collapses the wave function and creates the reality of something moving from being a probability to actually being a particle, a physical yes, existence, yes, yes. is my explanation. Is that The idea is that observation is not done through our senses. Observation is done through our consciousness, and, and our consciousness is capable of observing a home. And when you observe it, it happens. When you observe that it's yours, it becomes yours. When you observe that it is with someone that you love, you've basically created the event through physics. I also look at it from a, a spiritual point of view because you don't have to be spiritual to understand that there is something in us that animates this physical form and makes it alive. When my wonderful Ali left this world, you can easily see that this body that was left behind was not Ali, that the beautiful being that he was, was a mix of that physical form and something else. And if that's something else, as spirituality would say, is part of the divine, then that something else has the capability to create anything that it wants. It just needs to behave like the divine. And in many religious teachings, basically the divine says, I'll answer your prayers if you believe that I can. <laughs> I mean, if you're asking me and you believe that I'm a car salesman and I'm not going to be able to give you what you want, then good luck. But if you believe that I can, if you truly put it on your vision board and say, this will be in my life, then yeah, you're capable of creating it. But do we need the science behind it? We don't, do we? Some people do, which is interesting because having told you that I was not really a skeptic, but I was keeping it very separate in my life. I was already doing manifestation, but I 
did get to a point where I was like, but I'd like to know the science behind this. And when I started looking into the cognitive science behind it, it made a lot of sense to me. And what a lot of people who aren't sciencey at all have said to me about the source is, I've heard all of that stuff before, but with actual science to back it up, it made me actually do things rather than just read it and say, yeah, yeah, that's true, but I'm not going to do anything. I want to really say to you, thank you for sharing about manifesting, if you haven't done that before. When you were speaking about Ali, I got the waves of goosebumps in my legs. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is from Rumi, which is, there is a voice that doesn't speak. Listen. <laughs> yeah, I listen all the time, believe it or not. I'm constantly paying attention, as you rightly taught us. You know what, Tara? I, I think you're amazing. I really do. I'm so, so, so delighted. I want to ask a question before we end this. So does your husband feel completely helpless, like you're totally in control of this because you can manifest <laughs> anything you want? Is he like, oh, you know, I wish I could go out for coffee, but she needs to approve that, you know, sort of on a spiritual level. Is that how it is? On a spiritual level, he is way more powerful than me. He's taught me so much. When we started our relationship, I felt like because... I was a doctor and I had all the neuroscience knowledge that I had a lot to teach him about a healthy lifestyle. It didn't take me that long to realize that I've got very little to teach him. And I've, for me, you know, having been a doctor to say, actually all of my medical knowledge is nothing compared to this person's wisdom and spirit was quite big for me. I don't easily admit that kind of thing. Remember I started off by saying, I didn't think there were any limitations. I thought I could do anything. And, you know, as a doctor, you do get put into that, almost godlike status which it's you've got to make sure that that doesn't happen so yeah I've had such a unexpected this sort of stage of my life where I've realized I don't know anything and I've met this person who doesn't formally yeah he does like to drink too much coffee and <laughs> does look at his phone in the middle of the night and, you know <laughs> but yeah good. no <laughs> <laughs> but on apart from those like the things that any wife would, I think, nag her husband about. Apart from that, not at all. And I think, you know, one of the things is that he's not, he's just not that impressed by me at all. He's just, I'm just his little wife. He's not that bothered about me being a neuroscientist or anything like that. Man, that's an amazing mix, as a matter of fact. I mean, I think it's important that he doesn't know where it's going to hit him. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, it's also relaxing for you to go like, yeah, he's fine. I can sort of live my, uh, my own side of it. I think that's amazing. That's wonderful. By the way, we should play what you said back to him because that was such a wonderful statement of love. And I, I actually think you may not have realized that, but you said so many, so many things that wouldn't come from the typical image of an incredibly successful neuroscientist who's done a PhD and was a medical doctor and all of that. I actually think what you just said was, really coming from the heart of the woman that is in love, which I think is a beautiful way for us to end our conversation. So before we go, I want to ask you about that online program. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah, because I have worked, I've literally poured my heart and soul into it this year. I have filmed and created from scratch an entire six-week online program with MIT in lockdown. All the filming was done on Zoom. They'd never done that before. I didn't know that they hadn't done that before until I started and I was quite glad. 
because I thought they were all pros and they'd done it several times. So it's called Neuroscience for Business, but it is based on the source, but it's the sort of business and leadership twist of all of those things that we just talked about, manifestation, abundance, trust, purpose, legacy, but just taken and put into very much the executive's form of thinking, I guess, is how I would put it. So how do people get access to that? Is it only for companies or individuals as well? No, it's for individuals. It's it's on the MIT Sloan website in their self-paced short online courses. Mine actually launches in February and all the dates for next year are on the website. So Neuroscience for Business is the name of the program. Did you guys hear that? So what a gift here. So just put it on your action boards so that you're <laughs> going to listen to Tara in February. I will be there. So I'll meet you all there to listen and learn a bit more. And Amazing. Yeah, I will tell you openly, when we started, I said you were it. I think everyone knows that now. You are it. <laughs> I am so, so, so grateful that you gave me the time. You're not escaping me. So we're going to be totally in touch. I hope that we meet together soon. In physical spaces, you, me, your husband, Alice, Dan, and everyone that introduced you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just want to say, like, you're amazing. You embody kindness and love. Like I said, I felt like we knew each other anyway, but yeah, I absolutely would love to meet. And that group, Dan, Alice, you, me, and my husband, would be a really, really good group. I think that would be a lot of fun. So let's manifest yeah. that. Let's make that happen. I'd say April. Do you think that's Okay, sounds right? I'll put that on my board for 2021. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo. Thank you. Thank you. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, Stay happy.